the prints really provide a kind of mirror of society in a way that other media do not. Print friends, and welcome to episode 100. I'm your host, Miranda Metcalf. I release weekly podcasts with people around the world who share our love of printmaking. If you like what we do, you can join us over on Patreon and receive some bonus content, or just tell a fellow print friend about the podcast. Hello, Print Friend is brought to you by Speedball Art Products, who've been offering a diverse range of high-quality products to your creative practice since 1997. But we all know those products do not use themselves, and that's why Speedball works with a fantastic lineup of contemporary printmakers that make up the Speedball team of demo artists. Artists like Melanie Yazzie, professor of art practices and the head of printmaking at the University of Colorado Boulder. Melanie has worked with Speedball products since 1994 because of their readiness to reach out to the everyday artist with earth-friendly materials. So if you want to learn a few tricks of the trade and expand and improve your practice, head on over to Speedball's YouTube channel see how it's done. There's a link in the show notes. Printmaking forever. Shun the non-believers. One more quick note, print friends. We are running a fundraiser to create transcripts for our archive and for future episodes. As of right now, we are over halfway there, and there are two weeks left. Please check out the link in the show notes. It is a modest goal, which will go towards an automated transcription service and paying an intern we already have lined up to clean up that text. A great way to celebrate 100 episodes would be to come together as a community and help make this resource more accessible. Truly, every little bit helps. Link in the show notes. My guest this week is someone near and dear to my heart, Dr. Pia Cuneo. As some of our listeners may know, Pia was my graduate school advisor at the University of Arizona. It was her passion for the medium that put me on the path that brought me here today. Her mentorship and guidance helped make me who I am, and it is not an exaggeration to say there would be no Hello Print Friend podcast without her. It was my absolute pleasure to have her on in honor of our 100th episode. We'll talk about when she changed her major from pre-bent to art history, the development of printmaking technology and its contemporary parallels, who prints were made for and how that revolutionized the art world, selling prints, and what makes a good art historian. So, without further ado, sit back, relax, and prepare to do a little time traveling with Dr. Pia Cuneo. Hi Pia, how's it going? Hi Miranda, so good to hear from you. Oh, I'm so so happy to have you on the podcast. Um, as I think longtime Pine Copper Line listeners may know, um, you are basically the reason this podcast exists. <laughs> so, um, because I came to study with you at University of Arizona in 2010, I think. 20. Oh my goodness. I a lifetime a ago. A lifetime ago, like truly a lifetime ago. And I was really interested in animals and art specifically, which is we'll get into mm -hmm. as part of what you study. But then I just completely fell in love with printmaking through uh, your mentorship and your your generosity. And it 
I just got the bug and I, I haven't left. So I'm oh. just really, really happy that I could share you with the printmaking, <laughs> <laughs> share you with, with my, my pine copper lime family. Yeah. So thank you for joining me. Professors are always so grateful for wonderful students and you were amongst the very best, oh. Miranda, for sure. I remember you, you came to the U of A and you, you had submitted a really intriguing paper on taxidermy yes. <laughs> as art, which was just so intriguing. Everybody in the faculty meeting sort of sat up and, and said, oh, who is this person? <laughs> and I said, hands off, she's mine. She's going to study with me. <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it. Yeah, yeah. That was, uh, yeah, my, my taxidermy art because I was coming from a philosophy background and yes. with an interest in aesthetics, but I, I really – you know, through that, I, I love doing that. But I was like, I was like, you know, I think what I really love about this is is the art more than the philosophy. Mm, and so, mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, that's why I knew I wanted to do my my graduate work in in art history. And so it it, it worked out, and it just was it was just such um, yeah such a special time in my life and such a time oh, of good. of growth and uh, yeah. So I'm yeah, it's just <laughs> I'm just delighted that we've been able to stay in touch and stay friends and stay colleagues and print advocates. And it's, yeah, yeah, me too. It's so nice. It's so nice. Well, I always ask all of my guests to give themselves mm -hmm. a little introduction that I call answering the questions, who you are, where you are, what you do. Okay. So who I am is recently retired. Yes. I'm completely psyched about that. <laughs> um, as of one week, I'm retired. Yay, congrats. So, uh, but I don't, I don't think my brain has totally shut down <laughs> in the meantime. But um, I actually wanted to study medicine oh, when really? I got uh, to college. Yeah. Uh, you know, this was in the 70s. Anybody with two brain cells to rub together thought that they were going to go to med school, as did I. Uh -huh. And um, I started off in college my freshman year. I had my, my schedule all planned out. And um, I got to Mount Holyoke and thought I was going to start out. And the, the uh, counselor said to me, the advisor said to me, oh, that English class you signed up for is full. Mm. So you're going to have to take, you're going to have to find another class. And I had already um, said that I was going to be or proclaimed uh, pre-med as my major, and I had the schedule all set up. So I needed to find a class that just slotted right into that time period when the English class would have taken place because mm. I didn't want to mess anything else up. Yeah, of course. So I looked around in the catalog, and there was this survey of art history class. I'd never taken art history before. And I thought, oh, that could be kind of fun, and it's right at the right time. And so being a dutiful daughter, I called up my mom and said, <laughs> I'm thinking of doing this. And she said, oh, I, art history is wonderful. I think you should take it. And that survey course totally changed mm. the history of my life. Mm. The, that first semester, I loved every minute of it. And then the second semester, I took uh, advanced art history, and I also – took a developmental biology class oh, uh -huh. and every minute in the lab I hated and uh -huh. every minute in the library researching 
the art history, I just absolutely loved. So at the end of my freshman year, I changed my major from pre-med to art history. I upset my parents greatly. <laughs> and, and many people are alive today because I changed my <laughs> major. <laughs> So oh, wow. that's that's how I kind of stumbled into art history, and I I stumbled into the world of Northern Renaissance, particularly the art of Germany, mm-hmm. and particularly prints. Also, through fortuitous circumstances, uh, at the end of college, I decided I wanted to uh, spend some time in Germany, and I wound up getting um, an internship at the Kunsthalle in Hamburg. Mm. And they were putting on an exhibition on portraiture during the time of Luther. Mm. And so I was, they, they kind of hired me as a, just a research assistant. And so I was working with all of these prints from uh, the Reformation on their exhibition. And I just love oh, this wow. stuff. And that's really how I got into that, into that field. Oh, wow. Like what, what an exciting, like just this, yeah, like for, I, I can tell I'm still such a print nerd because I'm like, wow, thrilling, like you work with Reformation era prints, you know, but really, truly, because I, I, um, you know, one of the things that, that you gave me was just uh, an absolute fascination and awe of the of the ways in which printmaking intersects with these major changes in western history right and right um so yeah so the idea of getting to work with reformation era prints just sounds in- incredible yeah yeah yeah, yeah. It, and that really is that's one of the things exactly that i that i love about prints is that they and of course i'm i'm speaking in my area of knowledge, which is European Mm -hmm. and mostly central European and, you know, essentially from the beginning of printmaking in the West. So 15th century through really 1550, 1600, even though prints go further, my area Mm -hmm. of specialty is that, but they're so fascinating because they truly are windows onto all kinds of concerns Mm. that people at that time period had about gender, about politics, about economics, about society, uh, concerns that hardly ever get articulated in quite the same way in the more quote unquote formal media, Mm. such as painting and sculpture. Yeah. Because of course, prints are made for the open market. So the artist has to figure out well, what are people talking about now? What's really important? What are they interested in? And how can I create an image that they will want to buy, mm, mm-hmm. that they will find uh, interesting and they'll, they'll want to either collect it or they'll want to show it to their friends or they want to tack it up on their wall. Mm-hmm. So it really, the prints really provide a kind of mirror of society in a way that other media do not. Right, right. And and that's sort of in contrast to, you know, as you're saying, maybe an oil painting, which would have been commissioned. So this would have been, you know, exactly. one person's right. vision for right. probably, you know, um, if it's for like a private residence, you know, them and their friends, or if it's a church, it's going to have, you know, public viewing, but with right. a very specific agenda. 
Um, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And so mm-hmm. with, with, with Prince, that idea of having to create an image that just had to be good enough to sell itself, I mean, that would have been the first time in history, I, I, I would guess, right? That, that at least in, you know, as you say, like, you know, Central European, Western history, that, mm-hmm. that people had to kind of come up with this idea of, I make, I make an image and then in, in a massive way too, right? Because you can, right. through the power right. of the multiple, that right. needs to have a broad appeal. So as you say, it needs to speak to right. what's going on in people's lives. Right. Which is so fascinating because that's how the contemporary art market just works now, <laughs> you know, more or right. less. Exactly. Exactly. But, but when it happened, in Europe at this time, it, it, it was represented such an incredible shift because most art produced during this time, exactly as you said, was commissioned mm. and there were contracts and these contracts stipulated what kind of pigments do you use? Right. How, how many of your, uh, apprentices can work on it? How many months are you going to use to finish it? Um, what's the payment schedule going to be like? Who's going to vouch for the quality? I mean, just, these were real business transactions. And with the printmakers, they totally stepped out of that very safe and very circumscribed kind of, um, of setup mm-hmm. kind of occupation. And really, in many ways, totally went out on a limb. Mm-hmm. I, and in terms of that happening earlier in the history of culture, the thing that things that come to mind for me are things like uh, you know, ancient Greek vase painting. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and which were almost I'm gonna use this word anachronistically, almost industrially produced, right? right? Lots and lots yeah, of yeah. them beautifully decorated. And people bought the ones that they, you know, that they liked, how much oil did they have to store and how many horses mm. were on the mm-hmm. on the outside as a decoration. But certainly not mass produced quite like prints. And then in the Middle Ages, they also had decorative works like jewelry boxes and mirrors and things like that. But they were really not mass produced. And, of course, they were for the aristocracy as Mm -hmm. opposed to prints that you could, you know, a huge range of consumers. You could get a print for literally a couple of pennies. Mm. And then you could get something like Durer's Melancholia from 1514 that, you know, just cost several days wages of a Mm. highly skilled laborer. So Mm. big, big range there. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that's fascinating too, in the sense that I think sometimes people picture, uh, you know, 1200 to 1800 is kind of all the same. And during that time (laughs) there were kings and there were serfs and then that's it. Right. And, and so, which, you know, I mean, that's of course, just because people don't, get educated in it, right? That's, you know, through, through no right. one's real fault. But I, I think it's what you're speaking to is really fascinating as well. Cause it's, it's pulling that light onto the fact that, you know, there was a, a merchant class or there was lesser nobility yes. a, as well as people who were, you know, quite, quite yeah. poor. Um, and that Prince could sort of speak to that entire range of society, you know, all up to, you know, um, Dur's procession, uh, mm-hmm. you know, which would be for, for, the, the wealthiest of the wealthy. So, right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So there right. were prints for everyone. Yeah. Yes. Because Durer produced, for example, for the Habsburg Emperor Maximilian, right? That's mm-hmm. the procession yes. 
that that you're thinking of, right? And those were given, those prints were given away as diplomatic and political gifts mm. to other members of the nobility. So just as you said, the highest of the high. Plus another another kind of interesting parallel is that between the print medium, which for Europe in the 15th century was such a new medium. Mm. And to me, it's a little bit like, it was a little bit like computers. Mm -hmm. So my first computer I had in graduate school, and what did I use the computer for? I used it like a typewriter. Mm -hmm. So here's this new technology that I used in a way to replicate an older technology. And it only took, it took me many, many years to really even start to use the potential of this new medium, of this new mm. technology. And I think it was the same for for printmaking. So printmaking initially, and I'm obviously I'm talking here about woodcuts mm -hmm. and engravings, printmaking at first kind of replicated particularly uh, devotional manuscripts, mm. so an older technology. Yeah. And it was only until a couple of generations later where artists like Martin Schongauer and Albrecht Dürer came along and said, no, wait a minute, this is, this is a technology that has all kinds of potential all on its own. And let's really push this envelope here and not just try and make it look like a different kind of hand illuminated manuscript. Mm. So printmaking like computers in, uh, let's say the, the, maybe the seventies and the eighties was this fascinating new technology. Mm. And people started at this time also to collect prints because they were the product of this, of this new technology that hadn't been around historically in the West for all that much time. So they were really fascinated mm. by it as a technique, not just in terms of the subject matter, but also as a, as a product. Yeah. Yeah. And so like, how would people be, be purchasing them? I know, you know, we've, I, I, in, in my thesis, I got to write about, um, the four winds in Antwerp, yes. um, which was really lovely and, you know, got to type over and over again. You can't get away from it. It's a hilarious name. Hieronymus Koch, the publisher, right. <laughs> the publisher. Um, right. And, and so, but so would people go to those, those shops? Would, would they be in marketplaces? How would people encounter them yeah. for collecting? That's a, that's a really important question to ask. So in the, in the beginning, when prints first started to be made, they were, uh, very often associated with monastic workshops mm. because the prints, like I said, you know, we're, we're trying to replicate older forms of, of image making, which was to make these images of saints that people wanted to use to, you know, for, for their daily devotion. So a lot of the early prints came out of monastic contexts. And then I don't know why this jump particularly happened. Maybe it was the, this uh, recognition that that printmaking as a technology has other kinds of potential, but then artists started to pick up making prints. And so they would sell prints from their own workshops mm. in towns. And we know, for example, from Albrecht Dürer, that he actually hired 
what were essentially traveling salespeople to uh, travel around Europe. And of course, the great thing about prints is they're on paper, they're Uh light, you know, that you can roll them up and put them in barrels and have them shipped Mm -hmm. all over the place. So you could, you could find prints in the artist's workshop. You could find them in, um, like monastic workshops. You could find them in bookstores because printmaking is also very much tied to book production and printing. Mm -hmm. Um, then you had these traveling salespeople and then the artists themselves, again, using Durer as a reference, we know that he went to different fairs. He also sent his wife Mm -hmm. to different fairs. Like Frankfurt had a very famous biannual fair that lots of merchants selling all kinds of things would come together and offer things for sale. He sent, he sent his wife there with his prince when he traveled to the Netherlands in 1521, he brought a lot of his prints along to sell he wrote a, a little diary of his time in the Netherlands, mm. which is really more like a, a glorified ledger book. He uh. really kept kept track of, of what he spent his money on. But he does say, you know, I, I gave person X these couple of prints sort of as a as a barter exchange, uh. but also as as gifts for people. So um, because prints were so movable, they were so easy to sell. Yeah. And they just got all over Europe through that through those mechanisms. That's a, that's so interesting because you know, hearing it, I'm just thinking, this is the same. This is what prints do now. You know, yes, like through print exchanges with contemporary artists, or oh um, yeah, the you know, like you put it, roll it up and put it in a barrel, roll it up and put it in a tube at the post office. So all yes, right. you know, like it's um, giving them as gifts for people, bar- like bartering and exchanging with them. You know, I, I again, it's like because we have that multiplicity element to it yes. that. Mm-hmm. You know, artists can use the prints in, in all of these different ways. And, and for instance, you know, when I was at Davidson, I, I did a lot of international exhibitions in this way that you truly couldn't, not at a gallery at our scale, with painting. Um, yes. You know, like mm-hmm. I, I could – I did a show, I think, with something like over 60 mezzotint artists throughout the world because, oh, wow. you know, because if you can be a mezzotint artist – Contemporary mezzotint artist in Russia, and you can take, you know, your little, um, you know, the 12 by 8 inch paper and, and pop it between two pieces of cardboard and send it to Seattle for, <laughs> you know, for under $10. Like, and, yeah. and then it can, it can, it can be seen in this exhibition with your colleagues and you just, mm-hmm. it, the, the, the portability, the incredible way that they travel, it still affects the way print artists today interact with their mm-hmm. medium. It's, it's, yeah, yeah. it's, it's right there yeah. in the seeds. Yeah. Right there. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. And, and also, also the, the idea of making prints to be seen by other artists mm. and to be looked at and talked about, that was very much a function of prints already in the Renaissance. This was a way for artists to become famous, Uh, uh that they could get their imagery out there. And other artists bought the prints 
of other artists to help to, to give them some visual ideas and as as input. Oh, that's fascinating. And, yeah. So you, I, you know, yeah. I think I think some of the some of Durer's prints, for for example, like the Saint Saint Eustace engraving. It's from around 1498, and it shows Saint Eustace kneeling in the forest. He's gotten off his horse, and he's kneeling because he sees a stag with a crucifixion mm. in between its antlers. And then in the foreground, I think it's three figures of three dogs, but obviously it's the same dog that Durer has looked at mm-hmm. From, mm-hmm. from three different angles. And the horse is very carefully posed. Well, I'm quite sure that Durer meant that not just as a print for somebody who was a devotee of St. Eustace, but for other artists who could look uh-huh. at, who could use those figures of the dogs and the horses and incorporate those into their own work. Because re- remember how artists are trained, two-dimensional artists are trained in the Renaissance through the use of pattern books, Yeah, right? So they had these books just full of figures and designs. Well, the prints kind of functioned like a more modern day pattern book mm-hmm. for these artists. Right. And and this idea, of course, that, you know, as, I think as anyone who's attempted to draw anything knows, you know, <laughs> trying to draw your dog is right. more or less impossible. But if you can if you can see the way another artist right. has, has done it, like see, okay, like that's how they that's how they chose to make the lines. And right. then of course, you can't just Google dog reference photo, you know? So like you can't, and especially if maybe you don't have access to the pattern books because you know, you're not in school or training. I'm sure those were limited supply that, but you could go and you could go to a fair and you could buy a print and, and all of a sudden, yeah, you can sort of train yourself. And this actually is making me think a lot about one of the most fascinating courses I, I ever took was with you. It was a. It was a. It, it was about the ways in which prints sort of interacted with the body, and like medical technology. Oh, yeah. And so, yeah. mm-hmm. um, I'd love to hear you speak to that because I think about that all the time, and I almost feel like there's maybe a, a, a similarity because we're kind of getting into like the transmission of technical knowledge um, right. with the drawing. And so, but it also, of course, it was way beyond the arts. It was into anatomy and science. And yeah, so how do prints fit into that? Right. Well, um, I I would like to give you and your listeners a, a really wonderful reference. Mm. Some people might might know it already. Um, it's a it's a catalog called Prints and the Pursuit of Knowledge mm-hmm. in Early Modern Europe. The author's name, of course, it's a compilation of of many different authors, but the compiler here is Susan Dackerman, D-A-C-K-E-R-M-A-N. And this was um, an exhibition of prints at the Harvard Art Museums. And this big catalog came out with it. And that is the whole emphasis of this really exquisite catalog, and it must have been a fantastic exhibition, mm-hmm. tracing exactly how it is that prints not just kind of passively provided people with information from anatomy to astronomy to the natural world, just all kinds of, and, and, and art as well, but that prints and 
trying to put the put put this information in visual form was itself a kind of experimentation and was mm. itself a way of working out what you knew, not just, not just communicating it in a sort of a passive way, but actually figuring it out what it was that you actually did know. And so the whole point of this exhibition was the overlap between science and art, mm -hmm. science and particularly printmaking. And so that is something that I, I really recommend yeah. uh, that, that people look at because it's, it's, just wonderful. I still have my copy. Um, and oh, I, that was, did we use that yes, for the, yeah. for, okay. <laughs> and it's, it's, it's beautiful. Like the, the reproductions of the images are beautiful. Yeah. yeah. It's, it would be anyone who's, who's at all interested in it. It's yeah. It's an incredible resource. Yeah. I think it's from 2010 or 2011 or, or something like mm -hmm. that, but really it has not been, nobody has done anything better uh, as far as I'm concerned, yeah, uh, along those along those lines. So yeah, and I I remember you know kind of realizing what a game changer this was for the transmission of of technical and scientific knowledge, specifically yeah. through when we were discussing anatomy and how you know if before if you if you had you know your best guess at what the insides of a human looked like. <laughs> Uh -huh. And and you wanted to make it for someone else, you know, you it would be copied by hand, you know, probably by a monk, right? right? Like a right. And then that image would go and you know travel maybe, and then be copied by hand by another monk. And of course, right. As we all know, you make a copy of a copy, errors occur. Yes. And right. the fact that that best guess, the original best guess, or maybe even the original, you know, the drawing that was closest to the source. Instead, mm -hmm. it could be produced on a massive scale and, and distributed, and then everyone has that same image, and then a better image comes exact along. Exact same, and yes. that, Yeah, and how it's just – it completely blew my mind in the sense of like, what? Like there was – like a, there was no way to do that before. Like this, this right. idea of the way we have our modern conception of what knowledge is, you know, the fact that I know that my liver sits right here. <laughs> Never seen yes. it, you know, but I assume yeah. it's true, you know, <laughs> because it's what I've been told and because that it's, it's consistently told throughout every place I've encountered it, you know. Um, yes. And mm -hmm. that, 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 just didn't even exist before. It's incredibly fascinating to me. Yeah. Yes. Yes. But in in some way too, and I I think more recently, art historians and cultural historians have paid a little bit more attention to this. These even these so-called objective images and prints are contaminated, mm -hmm. and they are contaminated by art. Yeah. Because the the people who um, created these images often, you know, took, they took objective visual information, but they also filtered it through uh, a kind of aesthetic iconographic set of lenses that they had through their training as artists. And this really brings up a, a fascinating issue, which is, you know, if, if, for example, you have a woodcutter who is making images like like for Vesalius's mm -hmm. book on human anatomy right from the from the 1540s i think sometime and 
so what what role exactly does the artist play? And he, he he's made all of these wonderful figures, human figures, cadavers, displaying their innards, but but they're standing, they're walking, they're gesturing, they're posing. You know, they're they're not just these yeah. these pieces of meat on yeah. the on the on the table, right? So the artist has has transformed these images through the lens of what of of what we would call fine art, right? An mm-hmm. image that he would get or create, for example, for a, for a portrait or from a narrative uh, telling a, a story of the life of a saint, right? But it, mm-hmm. but yet it's in the scientific realm. And so, what does that mean for the artist? Does does it mean that the artist read the book of anatomy? Probably not, if it's in mm-hmm. Latin. Yeah. Um, did the, did Vesalius talk to the artist and say, okay, look, buddy, I want you to make make these images like this. Or did the artist talk to Vesalius? So, and there's really no way in this particular time period of knowing for sure Mm -hmm. how that Mm -hmm. transfer of information occurred between the author, between the text and between the artist, but it's actually very, very complicated. And while it's really, really important to show what an, what what a foundational role art played in the transmission of scientific knowledge, we can't forget that science was in some ways also influenced by art. Yeah. 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 And, Uh, and I think, I think that catalog by Dackerman talks about that too. And really yes. smart way. Yes. And that, you know, it goes back to that, that artificial division between science and art yeah. that yes. we still struggle with today. <laughs> exactly. Um, exactly. Yeah. That, that there are two sides of the, of sort of the intellectual spectrum and, you know, right. totally unrelated, right? Like it's just such a, <laughs> and, and yeah. Another thing that I'm, I'm kind of curious about too, with the, the history of printmaking and I, I, think we maybe got into it a little bit while I was studying with you, but again is something that gets me really jazzed when I get an opportunity to talk about the history of printmaking, which is, you know, sort of print's relationship to this formation of sort of like an intellectual private life, um, uh-huh. you know, and this idea that, you know, you could have an image that was just yours, really. Um, and yes. of course, you know, uh, it, it is not to say like there weren't drawings and that sort of thing or as, but like, you know, really this kind of like, you could have like a private print collection. Yes. Um, and, 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 you know, everything that, that kind of goes along with that and that formation of like this real private world that people mm-hmm. now sort of take for granted, I think particularly, you know, where you're like, I, there's so much privacy in, in the digital age as well. So, yeah, I don't know if you could just sort of speak to that a bit oh, too. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting because uh, for many reasons, but um, one thing that comes to mind is that people's use of images, um, let's say bef- before printmaking, so any anything from the Middle Ages – through, let's say, the 15th century, uh, was mostly communal. Mm-hmm. I mean, if if you're a, if you're a, a prince or a duke, of course, you could you could have somebody produce your very own manuscript that you would sit in your castle on a rainy day and and look through and mm-hmm. enjoy. But but for these 
merchants who be who begin to become a really important social and economic factor in the course of the later Middle Ages onward, they interacted with images, imagery really in a public sort of way, either in church or in the town square. These were images that were meant to be viewed communally mm -hmm. and by a number of people all at the same time. But you're absolutely right. In prints, because they were affordable, you could go out and purchase them. And as we already spoke, they were readily available in mm -hmm. a number of different places. And then, of course, because they're pieces of paper, you could sit somewhere with next to a good good light source, mm -hmm. the sun, for example. Yeah. <laughs> and you could and you could really you could really study those images. You could physically hold them close mm -hmm. to your face and up to the light and down in the shadow. You could move them easily and really inspect them. And again, think of this as a new technology, right? That you could you would just be amazed yeah. at at how these images were made just in black and white. And you're used to seeing color and you're used to seeing large scale and you're mm -hmm. used to seeing something like an altarpiece involved in a very physical kind of ritual. But this is your piece of paper, your little world that you can totally immerse yourself in. Mm. So that that is that is totally true and important, I think, about prints and how they were used and what makes them special. But we also are pretty sure that they could also be used in a social sort of setting where they could mm. be passed mm -hmm. around from person to person, again, because they're light and they, you know, s some of the subject matter is, can be pretty naughty, mm -hmm. uh, both politically as well as morally. You could, you could actually create more of a social cohesion through a small group of people passing these images around and talking about them, laughing mm -hmm. at them. This, you know, oh, this reminds me of, uh, you know, of, of something that I saw the other day or, you know, uh -huh. so they can be used as conversation starters and also to cement these, these social bonds. So I, I think that also is a very important right. way in which they might have functioned. So private, definitely, but also, um, also to create social cohesion. And, and I'm just thinking about it now. It's, you know, it's the 1540s version of screenshotting a meme and sending it to your friend, you know, yes. like, like, oh, yes. oh, this is so funny. You know, who think, you know, you know, who loves a joke about a water spout looking like a penis? Like, I'll send it to them, yeah. you know, like, <laughs> oh, this is, this is the, you know, this is so Frederick, you know, like, he has yes. to see it, you know. Right, um, right. Yeah. And, and then you, and then you have the Reformation on top of mm -hmm. everything, right? Where people's religious identity is, is totally in a, in a state of, of flux. And, you know, if Im imagine what it's like to pass around the latest portrait of, of Luther in yeah. woodcut or an engraving, mm -hmm. right? That that's a way of really proclaiming your loyalty to one camp or another. And, and this is just at the moment when people are trying to figure out, well, who is this guy and who am I and what do I think about what he says? And, Mm -hmm. And the broadsheets that were used to create pro 
Lutheran opinion or pro-papal opinion. I mean, so much of that happened through visual imagery that was made in prints. Yeah. Yeah. And I think this this idea that, you know, I can go out in the world and collect information and, like, form my own opinion about it. Yes. You know, that's like the bread and butter, I feel like, of the average person's intellectual world right now. But that must have been yeah. kind of new. You know, this idea that I, it's not just what, you know, what the my church is telling me. It's not just, yeah. you know, um, what my landlord is telling me. Like, independently, <laughs> I could go to right. a fair or I could go to a shop and I could get – I could gather this information and digest it and then decide, you know, oh, this Luther right. guy, he's kind of making some good points, you know? Exactly. <laughs> <Right? laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I am giving a lot of money to the church. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I also want to ask you, you know, kind of for for some ways in which, you know, as – contemporary printmakers, we can kind of be better or more informed about the way that we interact with historical work. Because so many of like the print stars that people still adore, you know, like Dürer, like Rembrandt, they they come from this period. And, mm-hmm. and you know, people love to look at them and, and draw from them. But what are some kind of maybe misconceptions or even, you know, just uh, what do people sort of need to know if they're looking at an image and they're like, oh, I'm moved by this. I, I want to draw from it. Um, right. Yeah. Right. Well, I would say generally sp- – uh, uh, what, what I will say is kind of generally true, although I think somebody – I think somebody like Rembrandt was, was just so unique mm. um, because he really – it seems like he produced images that were so – different and and he just didn't seem at all concerned about fame about putting bread on the table uh-huh. i mean so so he i think in some ways for me at least rembrandt is is one of the most quintessential quote unquote modern artists because mm. he really did seem to be so completely about the technique about the image itself mm. but when I when I would teach my students about Renaissance art, um, I would start off with trying to help them bring to the forefront of their minds the assumptions that they do bring to works of art. And one of the one of the most important mm. assumptions that they bring and that I think really gets in the way is this idea that artists that, that the reason an artist makes a work of art is because they have this burning uh, idea uh-huh. that they simply they simply must communicate it and it's deeply personal and it's a response to the world outside and um they 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 simply they simply have to get it out and making art is a way of communicating something very profound but also very personal Artists in the Renaissance were, for the most part, commissioned. And I, mm. I know, you know, that nobody likes to hear that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's really true. And also, the vast majority of, of works that were made during the Renaissance, and I'm going to use 1600 as a completely artificial cutoff, mm-hmm. but 
it was more prim- primarily religious in nature. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So very conservative in terms of function and in terms of, of subject matter. And were made the, uh, in a way that had nothing to do with what the artist himself believed mm-hmm. about anything, right? This was a business and um, he fulfilled a contract to, and very occasionally she fulfilled a contract to, to make this object. So, and, and I think, I think people kind of get, kind of get stuck in that, that they, that they really, because anything having in, in our modern way of thinking about things, if any art has anything to do with commerce, right. Or if it's commercial Mm. that immediately makes it less artistic Mm -hmm. and those kinds of ideas were for the most part, just not, uh, au courant in the, in mm. the Renaissance era, right? People just weren't thinking like that. Although it's true that in this particular period, this is the Renaissance. This is when these attitudes begin to change and that the artist is not just somebody who uses good quality materials. He's well-trained. She can, uh, she's competent in iconography or, right. or whatever, mm-hmm. but now you, the reason that you wish to commission a work is to have something from that person's own hand. Mm-hmm. So this is, this is right where these modern assumptions are born in the Renaissance, but they're, but they're so unusual. I mean, artists like, like Leonardo da Vinci or Michelangelo, they loom larger than life for us in the 21st century, but they were, they were so unusual Uh, in their uh time period. And I think that's, that's really important to, to keep in mind. And I think that's also one of the reasons why prints have been, uh, until fairly recently really ignored by art history because Mm -hmm. they're not one of a kind. They're, they're replicable. They're not expensive. People who weren't princes and Kings or popes, bought them and used them and enjoyed them. They were commercial and yet they are incredibly important. They shaped people's opinions. They, uh, entertained people, people created identities for themselves by associating with, with the subject matter in, in some of these works. So I, I just always think that no matter what image you're approaching, it, it's important to remember, even even if the imagery looks so realistic and so relatable, that these mm. are objects that come from a very, very particular, specific historical context. Mm. And of course, that makes them harder to understand, harder to consume, because you got to put some work into really <laughs> understanding them. Yeah, that's what that's what uh, kept me in business for yeah. thirty one years. <laughs> um, and it's true that there are some things about human existence that doesn't change. You know that people still love to laugh, for example. Mm-hmm. But what we find funny yeah. changes according to history, yeah. right? Men still like looking at women. But what they find beautiful mm-hmm. changes historically and culturally, right? So mm-hmm. now how what that means exactly for an artist when they approach a work, they of course are looking at it in very with very different eyes that have to do with, I think, 
if I may speak, mm -hmm. uh, for an artist in terms of composition and color and, and technique and line and all of that, that is, that I think is less to some extent is less historically embedded other than just the sheer materials that were used. Um, but, but I think, I think in try in terms of looking at an older image, a historical image and trying to really understand what it meant there, I think it's just incumbent upon people to try and understand the society mm -hmm. to which this image responded. Yeah. 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 That's, that's all like, most excellent. Yeah. Like what I was thinking, oh, pretty much exactly what I was thinking about, because that was a learning curve for me. Cause I, you know, as I said, I hadn't been trained in art history before coming yeah. to work with you. And so you show up and you look at, let's say that Rembrandt print about the, uh, Money changers at the temple or something, right? Yeah. And then you're like, right. you're like, oh, what did he, what did he name it? What did he title it? Yeah. You know, it's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. just because you're the way you're used to thinking about art. If you haven't been used to putting your mind in the historical context and the ways in which, which is, I think, what makes studying history and art history so fascinating, the the similarities and the differences, which is what you were speaking to. You know, the, the we still want to laugh. We still want to be yeah. sort of like scandalized and titillated and right. um and we want information and we we want to make fun of people who make us angry and <laughs> right. you know like all of these things so it's 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 some ways it's really tempting to kind of look at the images and say well I understand it because I'm connecting yes. with it in this way but also right. so incredibly different as well and and I think that 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 push and pull is where the fascination can really lie um, right. Yeah. But like, so like us and so not like us, which is really, really yes, interesting. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And I'm wondering too, if you could kind of speak to your own research, like specifically what, what you, what you were working on and also kind of the way it all can tell us about humans more generally. Right. Because of course you, um, had a particular interest in horses mm -hmm. uh, and even within that, you know, I know, uh, like technology, like bits and bridles and that mm -hmm, sort of thing as mm -hmm. well. But then of course, you know, you're never just learning about a horse when you're learning about a horse. Cause you're not, you're not looking at an image made by a horse. <laughs> you're looking <laughs> right. at an image made by a person. So you're really learning right. about the people. Um, but yeah, and just kind of that, um, what it's like to, to, to study something so in depth and how doing that teaches us more about history more broadly. Yeah. Okay. Well, let, if, if I think I can answer this best just by giving an example mm. of the latest project that I have been working on. So I have, have written an essay. It hasn't appeared yet, but mm. it's hopefully in the process. I've written an essay for a um, compilation that is titled The Indecent Body in the Renaissance. Mm. And um, I'm here for it. I'm sold. I'm already like intrigued. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and my my essay is about indecent horses' bodies. Uh -huh. There's um, there's a very strange series. Maybe it's a series. Maybe it's just three images. Most people think it's a series of some kind. 
made by the contemporary of Albrecht Durer, Hans Baldung is his name. Oh, I was hoping I was hoping Hans would show up in our chat. <laughs> oh yes, larger than life Hans. And um, these three woodcuts that he made in 1534, and each of the three sheets is carefully signed and dated. So these are very serious works that he made, serious insofar as he wanted people to know when they were made and that Mm -hmm. he was the creator of these images. And they are just totally bizarre Mm -hmm. in the the, um, sequence that we think they have. The first image shows, and they're all three of them show these these figures of horses in a forest. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're, you know, there's no bridles or saddles. They're just these horses in a forest. And each of the three images, they're different numbers. So it's not always the same horses. But in the first image, there's a horse, a stallion that is getting ready to mate with a mare. The mare is grazing. She doesn't know what's going on. Mm-hmm. The stallion is standing behind her with this gigantic erection. Mm-hmm. And then there's a man in the background peeking from behind a tree watching this. <laughs> and then underneath the stallion's erection is the little tablet that has Baldung's name and the date. And the little tablet is held by a monkey. Mm, so mm-hmm. just crazy stuff. The second sheet, the mare has is kicking the stallion away, so he hasn't been able to mate with her, and he's ejaculating on the ground. So, mm-hmm. you know, these are images you never see <laughs> animals with erections and ejaculations. Yeah. Um, and and yet there it is. It's totally in the foreground, and and you you can't you can't miss it, as they say. Mm-hmm. And then the third image is just all the horses fighting Mm -hmm. and the man and the monkey in the first image, they do not reappear in, in either of the following two. So what I wanted to figure out in this, uh, in this series obviously was, well, what does this actually mean? It's the subject matter. So unusual and indecent, Mm -hmm. right. To, to tie in with the, with an, um, Compilation of essays. Well, I I studied the concept. I researched the study. I'm sorry, the concept of uh, indecent humor in mm. Baldung's time. Mm-hmm. And my argument essentially is is that these prints were made to shock. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were made for people to say, "What? I've never seen anything yeah. like that in an image before." But they were also meant to provoke laughter. Mm. And mm-hmm. I, I looked at the, at the tradition of Mardi Gras oh, uh, that was, uh-huh. was celebrated very vigorously in Strasbourg where uh, Baldwin was working. And horses featured, people dressed up as horses mm. with, uh, and people running around with giant fake penises mm-hmm. and, you know, poked them at each other during, <laughs> during the Mardi Gras, evidently a totally wild time. And also these produced during the same time period were books of jokes. Mm-hmm. And the jokes often featured men and women in the bedroom uh-huh. using riding and horses as metaphors for what was happening Mm -hmm. or sometimes Mm -hmm. what was unfortunately not happening Mm -hmm. in the bedroom. So 
the looking at this image of the of the horses in this very strange series allowed me to think about humor and also about sexual mores that were very much under under debate because of the reformation what does yeah. it mean for protestants for a man and woman for a husband and wife to be together mm-hmm. in bed how how is sexuality expressed if you're protestant as opposed to catholic mm-hmm. because strasbourg right at this time right in 1534 is actively in the process of embracing luther's reformation and mm-hmm. there too there's talk in these marriage treatises about sexuality and using horses uh-huh. as metaphors for what's going on. Yeah. So it, it's a little it's a little fragmented and of course for uh time periods like the Renaissance we don't have a, a handy piece of writing by Hans Baldwin that yeah. says, "Oh yeah, when I made uh-huh. these footprints, here's what statement. I was thinking." Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. But it does it does make sense um, first of all, because the horses and horses understood as particularly lustful creatures, whether or not that's true is kind of besides the point, but they had this reputation in the, yeah. in the Renaissance as being, and in antiquity as being particularly lustful. And so if you just sort of trace where they appear in these joke books, in these processions, in these rituals, there, there really does seem to be a kind of parallel between where you find them in those sources and how Baldung is uh, using them or figuring them in the in the prints. Mm. So it was really, it was really the, those fifteen thirty four woodcuts that I was thinking about when I was speaking earlier about people passing these images around a small group of people. Mm-hmm. And you know, laughing or pointing or you know, conversing about what what was going on there. Presumably, um, this would be an audience of men mm-hmm. um, looking looking at the stallion and laughing at his predic- predicament. Maybe even making negative remarks about the about the mayor who wouldn't allow the stallion mm-hmm. to do what mm-hmm. he was primed to do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you can imagine a whole misogynistic yes. sort of riff coming out <laughs> coming out of that. Mm-hmm. So um if you if you look at these images of the of the animals, you understand that animals were so much a part of people's life and of their culture. Right. And how they were how they were really used to get at very human issues. And then considering what these animals in the images were used to articulate that can lead you to these larger cultural historical issues like what does it mean to laugh? What do we Mm -hmm. find funny? How do we express our sexuality? What does theology have to do with sexuality? How do I create friendships by uh, looking at images? How, How does how does that work to create social cohesion? So um, it's not just about you know one one single artist or or uh, images of horses, but these of course lead you if you're curious enough, and if you have a good enough imagination, they can lead you 
into these larger historical issues. I would always tell my students, and I'm probably repeating myself if I've told you as well, the thing that makes a good historian is not a good memory, (laughs) is not knowing a lot of dates. It's Uh curiosity and a good imagination. Oh, that's so beautiful. And I feel like that's the the perfect note to sort of start to wrap up on because okay. I, I okay. do think that that is a stumbling point for people when maybe particularly if they've just had a kind of unimaginative art history course in their undergrad mm. when all they were right. ever asked to do was who painted it, what was the date, what museum is right. it at, you know? <laughs> like, um, right. And and I just I, – I love that and I think that that – that message is something that you um, instilled in me and that oh, I, <laughs> I took with myself out into the world because I'm not good at remembering dates. <laughs> um, but yeah, that, 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 that kind of empathy and curiosity and flexible thinking um, yeah. is, yeah. is really what, what makes us, you know, good historians and good thinkers and good artists and all of good it. Good artists, yes. Yeah. And I just wanted to say that it's probably the artists – who, who are especially good at that yeah. when they engage with a work of art. I mean, I, I taught many historians at the university as well. And, you know, they were always nonplussed because there was no documents. And how mm, could I prove mm-hmm. this? Well, you can't prove anything. And yeah. even if you did have a document that said, I, Hans Balding, meant X when I made Y, well, Maybe he was lying or maybe he changed his mind or just because he didn't see it and I see it as a 16th century viewer doesn't doesn't mean that my reading of it is wrong. So it's always about interpretation and the the, you you can't you you need curiosity and imagination to Mm -hmm. interpret things correctly. So, I mean, in an interesting sort of way, let's put it. Yeah, yes, yes. Absolutely. And I think, I think to ultimately to, to get value out of it, you know, because as you say, like you can't, you can't look at, you know, an, an image of a, of an ejaculating stallion in the woods and give it a fundamental meaning (laughs) with a beginning and an end the same way you could if, if an artist made an image like that today. You know, it's right. it, it's the same thing. Like right. the, it's it's going to be it, it's going to be a personal interpretation between the viewer and the image. It's going to be the current political and social context and what people bring to right. it. And so, right. you know, I think it's it's not so much finding the answer. Is it what does this help us to understand about ourselves, right. about our history, about our right. human experience, um, right. all of it. Yeah. Right. It, it's it's not the answer. It's it's finding the right questions to pose. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Pia, thank you so much for. I'm oh, just Maureen, like, what a delight. I hope I didn't ramble on. No, I am completely <laughs> thrilled to get to share this conversation, and I'm having all my like just you know exciting. Uh, art history print scholar feelings flooding back into me and <laughs> it's it's just really wonderful great would you be able to maybe name drop a few publications that if people are are curious about your writing and and what you do why they could find you well first of all first of all i just want to mention this this very important book it's quite old already i think it's from 1990 but it's it's kind of the bible of 
Renaissance prints, and it's、mm. called Re-、uh, the Renaissance print 1470 to 1550、mm-hmm. by David Landau and Peter Parshall,、mm-hmm. and it's just chock a block full of really important basic information about printmaking north and south of the Alps. Just a, a, a wonderful resource, and I don't know. You can you can just Google Scholar. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Sounds good. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, again, just thank you, and I'm I'm really excited to to share and have you be the the hundredth episode. I'm so honored by that. I really am. What a, what a fantastic way for me to retire. So I thank <laughs> you from the bottom of my heart, Miranda. Well. That's our show for this week. If you like this episode, please consider reviewing it or rating it on Apple Podcast. If you didn't like it, don't don't worry about it. It's okay. Join me again next week when my guest will be Michael Barnes. That's right, all you wild print friends out there drawing on rocks, we got 'em. You won't want to miss it. This episode, like all episodes, was written and produced by me, Miranda Metcalf. With editing by Timothy Pauschak and music by Joshua Weber, I'll see you next week. <laughs>